This morning, I'd invite you to open your copy of the Scriptures to the book of John, and we're in chapter 7, verse 14 through 52. It's a big chunk, uh, but the good news is we've got a road map of how to get through it, and I think it's going to be a blessing to us as we see uh, Christ speaking clearly about who He is and, in fact, inviting people to come to Him. And so, as Royce just prayed, uh, may the Lord add to His Word a blessing of comforting the Christian, and may he also bring many more into the family of Christ this morning as the result of hearing the word. So if you don't have a Bible, there should be a blue one in a chair around you. Feel free to grab that. You'll see a page number on the screens behind me. It's page 893, and um, that's where we're at this morning. These Bibles are here for you, and if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, feel free to take that home with you as a gift from South Canyon. Um, But if you would follow along, I think you'll get a lot more out of this than just um, sitting here hoping that I can amaze you with juggling or something else. Um, I'm not that gifted. Let's let's look to God's Word. And since it's been a minute since we've been in the Gospel of John, let me just give you a a little bit of framework of what chapter 7 is all about. In the first 13 verses... Uh, we're told that Jesus, due to pressure from the Jewish leaders who were seeking to kill him, uh, kind of avoided the region of Judea. And so uh, even the people, we're told in verse 12, were so, um, so fearful of the Jewish leaders that they refused to talk about Jesus openly. He was kind of a social pariah. And not only did Jesus face opposition from these leaders... But his own brothers and the people remained skeptical, we're told in verses 5 and 12. So there's this element where Jesus' ministry started with a bang, and John's gospel in chapter 5, we see that he fed 5,000 people out of a, a small lunch, and he was able to make food multiply and everyone ate till they were full, and there were 12 basketfuls left over. And so even though Jesus snuck up into the mountains to escape the crowds, and even though he crossed the Sea of Galilee at night, they found him the next day. And now it's to the point where nobody wants to talk about him. There's, he's on the Pharisees' most wanted list, and even he's getting guff from his brothers. Now, if we look at the end of chapter 7, nothing much changes. If you look at verses 45 through 52, and we'll get there in a little bit, but just to give you a preview, uh, we see that these leaders remain unmoved in their opinions of Jesus. In fact, if anything, they get more and more hostile toward him. They're more and more eager to see him put down. And this is the way that the chapter ends. These men are so blinded by their hatred of Jesus, they don't even realize, as one of their own points out, that they are breaking the law. It has no effect on them. And these two bookends of the chapter help us um, come to a couple clear conclusions. One is, Jesus' death at the hands of the Pharisees and the chief priests is coming soon. But... The second thing is, they have no power over him until God ordains the time. 
You're going to see all over and over throughout chapter 7 that they sought to arrest him. They were looking for him, but they couldn't find him or they couldn't arrest him because he had such favor and pull with the people. The Pharisees were not going to get on the wrong side of popular opinion. And so what lies between the first 13 verses and then verses 45 through 52 is the meat of of John 7. And I believe it's where these bookends provide a holding place for the hope of Jesus. His teaching, his learned teaching exposes sinful hearts. And yet he invites everyone who hears to come to him with their need for cleansing and forgiveness. He says, believe on me. We're told that during the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Verse 2 tells us this of chapter 7, as does verse 10. And around the halfway point of the week is when Jesus enters the temple and begins teaching. So let's pick up at verse 14, which tells us this. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, and when we read the Jews... Jesus is a Jew. Uh, He's talking to Jewish people. So we understand John uses this word, the Jews, not derogatory of all Jews, but he's speaking of the rulers of the Jews. Sometimes he'll say that more clearly, the chief priests and the Pharisees, or they're described as lawyers and scribes. Um, But when he uses the Jews, please keep in mind, that is the leadership of the Jews, Otherwise, we'll hear them called as the people or the crowds, okay? So, the Jewish leaders are marveling at Jesus' teaching, and they say, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So, Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking On my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Now, see, the crowd answers Jesus, the Jews were silent. Because we've already been told in chapter 7, they are trying to kill him and everybody knows it. But the crowds are, they're a little bit unnerved by this. You have a demon who is seeking to kill you, they ask in verse 20. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. 
So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Let's pause there for a moment. We see in this passage that Jesus enters the temple. He begins teaching, and yet the passage doesn't really provide us much of the content of what Jesus taught. In fact, what we discover and learn from chapter 7 is mostly Jesus' response to questions, verses 14 through 24, and to comments in verses 25 through 36 that the people make. That is until we get to verse 37, where Jesus utters his invitation and his promise of eternal life. So it's, in order to better understand this large passage I want to give you what I think is the structure. And I see this passage falling into three sections. And this is going to be the shape of our outline, as it were, uh, how we're going to approach it in the next few minutes. The first section revolves around Jesus' words in the middle of the feast. And so, verses 14 through 36, what we've just read is the first section. And it's all about a question of authority. Make no mistake, when they are wondering where Jesus is from, or they think he's from here, but the Christ is going to come from here, when they're questioning where he got his education since he never studied under one of the school of the rabbis, they are not really concerned about these minor things. It's all about what Jesus will address. It's about authority. And you speak from authority. And where does he get this authority? And so we see that in the first section here, verses 14 through 36. It's a question of authority. The second section highlights Jesus' words on the very last day of this seven-day feast, and it's in verses 37 through 39. And there we find that Jesus makes a cry for people to come to him. He makes a cry for people to come to him. And then in the final section, we see the people and the Jewish leaders wrestling with Jesus' teaching. So that takes us from verse 40 all the way to 52. Jesus doesn't speak in that section. And so we see that they're all going back and forth about, is what he says true? Is who he, we think he might be? Is that a possibility given what we know of him? And then you have the leader's response, the Jewish leaders. They are just growing more and more aggressive and angered over Jesus, and they are doing what they can to stop him. 
And so there's the three movements. Let's dig into them in the next few minutes here, and let's look at this question of authority. We read it, so I'm not going to read it again, verses 14 through 36. But make no mistake, they're marveling at his teaching. They're wondering where an untrained guy got such knowledge. And the real question behind their question is not only do they want to know where he was taught, more importantly, by whose authority is he teaching? Now, this is a cultural uh, concern of theirs. It's, it's lost on us because if you've got the internet and social media, you can become an instant authority, right, on anything. And we got people who have 10 followers and 10 million followers who, when they speak, we all are supposed to kind of bow to them as an authority on the subject. Anybody with a microphone becomes an authority in our culture. But in Jesus' day, that was not the case. And so, if you were of a pedigree that you graduated from this rabbinical school, or you trained under this legal master, this rabbi, then you had their authority when you went out, and you spoke on behalf of the the institution or the educational uh, background that you had. And so, this is what they're getting at. They're looking around the room, and they're like, none of us ever taught Jesus. He didn't sit in the synagogue under my teaching. He didn't sit under mine either. Well, where did he get this? Whose authority is he speaking from? And so, in their day and age, rogue teachers were considered scoundrels. They were to be avoided. And in order for one's teaching to be received as legitimate, you had to demonstrate some pedigree. You had to speak about what kind of background you had. You had to, in a sense, lay out credentials so that you would get a hearing. And Jesus does none of this. He is not at all interested in trying to get people to listen to him because he grew up somewhere and went to school somewhere. He was aware of the real question, and we see that in his response. He doesn't give an introduction. He doesn't even say, okay, you guys don't know, but there was this little guy. He was a retired rabbi. You probably never heard of him. He was in Nazareth, and I sat on his knee, and I learned the scriptures from him. He doesn't even do that. Jesus just says his teaching is not his own. In fact, it belongs to the one who sent him. That's what he says in verse 16. And then Jesus just as quickly moves to the question behind the question. You want to know where I'm getting this authority? Well, I'll tell you. Look at verse 17 and 18. We'll read it again because it's so important. Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, that person will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking from my own authority. What Jesus is simply saying is this. He uses a rabbinical form. He responds to their question with a statement that is vague enough that it makes you have to puzzle over it and wrestle with it. Those who want to seek God, those people are the ones who will be able to determine whether what I'm saying is from God or not. Those are the ones that will find the truth. Here's the application. We have 
a lot of false teachers who are in our day. You're going to hear some of it on the 17th from the team that was in Africa and how this false gospel has taken such a hold on hearts in Africa. It's a, gospel, it's a false gospel that we in America exported to the world. It's a prosperity gospel. And, I, and I'm not mincing words here. It is a false gospel. And people are doing everything they can to buy favor with God. They are giving to the church. They're buying oils or special waters. They're asking for prayers to be said over them. And they're paying in order that God will hear their prayer because of how sincere, how large their gift is. God is not into the barter system. He's not into trade and the currency of man. The way he has purchased your salvation, your righteousness, is through the blood of his son. He is not going to cheapen it with trinkets or man-made constructs. This is a gospel that is sending people to hell because they really, when they hit stuff in life, are pleading and praying and trusting that this will indeed solve their problems, make them right with God, bring healing to their children, Allow their wives to have children. And when nothing happens, then they go to great extremes even more. I mean, it's tragic. And so we who are smarter than that, we have our false gospel preachers and teachers. They're on the internet. They're on the radio. They're probably delivering their messages to your phone even as we speak. Just a reminder, airplane mode is good during sermons. Silence is certainly a necessity. We would be wise to follow Jesus' counsel and, the, and measure what we read, see, and hear against God's Word. That's basically what Jesus is saying in verse 17. If you are seeking God's will, you will be seeking it through God's Word. And when you read the Word and you compare it to the Word that you're hearing, you will know what is truth from what is not. And so that's why we always put a page number on a Bible because we want everybody who comes to South Canyon to not listen to who's ever up here because they're up here, but to see it in the Scriptures for themselves and for each and every one to be fully convinced that this is the Word of God. It is authoritative. It is not any elder who stands up here. We have no authority. We are under the authority of God's Word, all of us. And so Jesus is, is he's speaking to this cultural reality that is looking for pedigree to get a hearing, and he goes right to the heart of it, that they will only know whether his Word is truly God's Word if they are seeking God. And that's a backhanded rebuke to these chief rulers and leaders. These men, we see in verse 18 and verse 28, that often the cultural practice was that leaders sought to puff themselves up in order to gain more followers. And Jesus took this practice head on by saying that they seek their own glory. And Jesus isn't like that. He's not seeking his own glory, but the glory of the one who sent him. This is contrary to what his brother said even in verse 4 of chapter 7. They're like, hey, 
you want to make a name for yourself, Jesus, stop doing these miracles out in the wilderness. Stop doing them down by the Sea of Galilee. You need to go to Jerusalem. That's the capital. That's the historic city. That's where everybody's going to be during the Feast of Tabernacles. You show up there and you do your tricks. You want to be known. That's when you do it. And Jesus is like, I am not about this stuff. I don't need a thousand likes. I don't need one like. I don't need friend requests. I, my identity is rooted in my relationship with the Father, nothing else. And no one can lay a hand on him prior to God's time for him to go to the cross. And no one can dissuade Jesus to take for even a moment his power and to use it for his own glory. He is so rooted in what God has called him to do. Jesus, notice that he highlights his own truthfulness. Did you see that in verse 18? The one who seeks glory of him who sent him is true. Jesus is saying this. In language that's a little concealed, but it's clear, Jesus is saying, I am seeking the glory of my Father, and that is true because I am true. And in me there is no falsehood. That's what the end of verse 18 shows us. This is going to come back later, and Jesus is going to connect it in verse 28 to the true one who sent him. And these are key words because the true one is connected to the true one, and true one is often used of God, Yahweh, the Father. And so it's, it's very clear as Jesus gets later in the passage, when he says these things in verses 28, 29, that's why they seek to arrest him right there at that moment. He is blaspheming in their ears. He's making himself equal with God. As we continue on, when it comes to making decisions about one's authority and the truthfulness of their teaching, Jesus argued they needed to use right judgment. That's what he says. You need to judge with right judgment in verse 24. But notice how he illustrates the fact that they haven't done this. So if you remember, back in chapter 5, Jesus, on the Sabbath day, walked into the, uh, the, the Pool of Siloam area, and he sees a man who had been a paralytic. He'd been ill for 30-some years. And he healed the man by the power of his word, told him to stand up. He walked. That man gets caught carrying his little rolled-up mat through the temple on the Sabbath, and he gets a lecture from the temple police. And the chief priest, who told you to do this? What are you doing? You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So Jesus is like, you guys are picking at me, but let me just tell you something. There is not one priest who would not administer the rite of circumcision just because it was the Sabbath. They would go ahead and do it because you had to do it on the eighth day after a boy was born. On his eighth day, he was to be circumcised according to the law of Moses. Now, you guys would cut off a small piece of flesh, and here I have made an entire man whole. And you're picking at me for that? Judge with right judgment. Don't judge by appearances. One commentator went on to say this about this. Given this back and forth about the Sabbath, 
Jesus' action was in the fullest accord with the healing and redeeming purposes which lie at the heart of the Old Covenant. Thus, far from being the enemy of Judaism and the law, Jesus is in fact the one in whom the historic purpose of Judaism is affirmed. He is the one who is fulfilling the law in a way in which no other person and no other act could ever do. So Jesus urged them, instructed them, cajoled them, rebuked them to judge with right judgment in verse 24. Now as we look at verses 25 through 36, there are several things going on in this section. As we've already seen, the crowds are moved by Jesus' teaching and by the fact that the most wanted person on the posters around the Temple Mount is standing right there preaching unopposed. He's not in disguise. He is not surrounded by men with armor and swords and shields. He's in every man, and he's right there in their midst, and they are doing nothing to stop him. Can this be the Christ? Is that why he is so unaffected? Is he the real deal? What could this mean except that he is the Christ? And yet there is this back and forth, even in this section, verse 27, of, well, he's from Galilee. We know where Jesus is from. And doesn't it say that he's supposed to be, that the the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee? They're confident that they know who Jesus is, and he cannot be the Christ. We'll see it again in verse 41. Jesus argues in verse 28, you think you know me. Yeah, yeah, I, I do come from Nazareth in Galilee, But if you think that's where I started, you don't really know me. I was sent here by the Father. Jesus attached himself to the language that was used only of Yahweh. He described himself as true and without falsehood in verse 18. And here, what does he say? That God himself is true. And there would be no question in the Jewish mind about that. Whether it was the person on the street or the, the scholars, they would all agree that God is the true one. And now Jesus is making himself equal with God. In spite of the fact that he is standing in front of his enemies, he is not holding back on the truth of who he knows himself to be. These immediately provokes a response. They tried to arrest him but could not because his hour had not come. And we see here how God uses ordinary means to accomplish his plans. For the time, Jesus is so popular, he's unattouchable. But there will come a day where that won't be the case. But it's not today. As the passage continues, the people don't understand how is it that Jesus says, I'm going to be leaving and you will not find me. I mean, we did it in Galilee. Do you not remember? We tracked you down. We followed a trail of breadcrumbs, maybe, from the disciples carrying 12 bags. But we found you. Everywhere you go, we can find you. What are you going to do? You're going to go off and go to the Hellenistic Jews? You're going to go preach to them? Are you going to go to the Greeks? Are you going to leave Galilee and Judea and go into an uncharted area. Jesus says it's a possibility, or that this is a possibility in their mind. To think that Jesus had mission plans for the Hellenistic Jews and the Gentile nations, it's not a wrong idea. 
These plans will actually be fulfilled when Jesus goes to his Father after his death and resurrection. When the Spirit then comes and he pours himself out on the church and they then take the gospel to the nations. God has always had a plan to fold in the nations into the covenant and to see them redeemed and for his name to be spoken with praise and honor and glory from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But this isn't what Jesus is speaking of. He declared his authority and teaching are from God. We see that in this first section, which happens to be the longest. He declares his authority and teaching are from God, a God who is true, and a God we cannot know apart from Jesus. Remember, he said, I know him, but you do not. The implication there is the only way for you and I to know him is for us to know Jesus. Jesus gives us access to the Father. And we also see that it is the Father who directs Jesus. He is not working for his own glory. And now Jesus makes his appeal. After giving his teaching and after responding to these questions about his teaching and his origins and his authority, Jesus now says, I'm going to call everyone to come to me in faith and receive eternal life. Let's read verses 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast... The great day. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John gives us an editorial comment here in verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not glorified. And so what, why does Jesus wait to make this statement on the very last day of the feast? Was it because he was afraid? What he had been doing in the middle of the feast and standing there preaching and teaching boldly, he, he was now feeling, oh man, if I could have a do-over, it would be, I wouldn't have done that. And so he kind of pops his head in on the last day of the feast. no. What was interesting on the feast, the last day of the feast was the high day. There was sacrifices offered. There was a special ceremony in the temple to celebrate this feast of booze, that time where God delivered Israel from their enslavement in Egypt. And what they would do on this, picture this, our sacrificial lamb, our high priest, our King Jesus is standing in the middle of the temple, surrounded by thousands of pilgrims who have come for this feast. He is likely standing by the offer where the sacrifice is being made. And on that last day, they would pour water from the pool of Siloam onto that altar. And it was a symbolic cleansing. And there Jesus stands, calling on all people who would come to him that they might receive the life-giving blessing of the Spirit. That they would be washed. And in fact, he promises in a dry and arid land, which we who are in Africa can appreciate, he promises to make rivers of living water come out of those who do believe in him. 
That means there is eternal life in this promise. Water is life. Without water, you cannot live. That's why they're trying to find it on the moon and on Mars. Jesus is using this imagery of the feast and what's taking place in the temple, and he is claiming to be the source of all the blessings that were anticipated in this feast. A final and full deliverance, not just from slavery to evil masters, but from slavery to sin, to wash and cleanse us. And he will do this as he is glorified by being lifted up on the cross After his ascension, the Spirit is going to be poured out. We see it in Acts 2. The rivers of God's blessings will flow into a thirsty and parched world. This will come back to us in John 19 and John 20. Here's Jesus' promises to you and I. He has promised that any and all who come to him who believe the things that he says about himself are true, will be satisfied in a way that nothing in this world can satisfy you. We sang that song, But God. You think about it, Christian. Has it been that long since you were an unbeliever that you had forgotten how you kept drinking from polluted wells to satisfy yourself? Has it been that long since... You have, and you've forgotten that sin doesn't satisfy. It produces a, a momentary and potent high, but sin ultimately never satisfies. If it did, we would only do it once. And Jesus is saying, I can cleanse you in such a way that those things will not have a hold on you like they did before. Your satisfaction, your joy, your chief aim in life will be about me and my mission. This is his promise. He made this statement at the woman, to the woman on the well in, in John chapter 4. He brings it back here. And John is helpful. He tells us this is about the Spirit who had not yet come because Jesus had not yet been glorified. He had not yet ascended. Now, you're going to have a question in our life group questions. You'll see it in the handout, in the bulletins. And it's, it's going to say something to the effect of, it seems like verse 34 and verse 37 are, are, are two opposing, contradictory statements that Jesus makes. In verse 34, Jesus says, you're going to look for me and you will not find me. But then in verse 37, he says, come to me. Has he got some twisted sixth sense of humor? I mean, it's like playing games with your little kids, right? Hide and seek, and they're like, cover their eyes. I can't see you, right? And they don't know what's really going on. They haven't figured out the fact that you didn't disappear when you covered your eyes. You're still standing in the same space. Is Jesus trying to punk all these people who are listening to him? No, I don't believe so. I don't want to rob you of wrestling with this question in your small groups this week, but I want to frame it in a way that may prove helpful. So you look at verse 34. They're not going to find Jesus because obviously he's going to have ascended to heaven. He's speaking of his physical departure from the earth. But I wonder, is that the only way in which we could interpret or apply that verse? Could it possibly be that for some of us who are playing the game with Jesus, you know the chicken game? 
you know, I, I'm not ready to commit to this thing called Christianity. I'm not re- ready to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm having too much fun playing both worlds. But there may come a day when I'll be like, okay, I've had enough, and now I'm going to get serious. Is it possible that Jesus is saying even that could be a risk that's not worth taking? That that's a dangerous game to play with your soul? Because what we don't understand is that little by little we are giving away pieces of our heart. And what we're trading those for is not a heart of flesh, but a heart of stone. And so, I don't know that I've ever met anybody who said, yeah, it worked out perfectly. I had a 35-year plan for sowing my wild oats, and then on this day I was going to get serious about Christ. I asked Him to save me, and my life has never been the same. And it worked perfectly. I'd recommend it. Never met anybody like that. But I have seen a lot of people who say, not now, not now, not now. And then there's never a time. Because they've hardened themselves. Jesus, make no mistake, look at it again. What does Jesus say? Come to me. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures had said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is calling people to come to him now. Today is the day of salvation. As Royce prayed, today is the day. You're not promised tomorrow. None of us are. Jesus is standing in the midst of the temple in the face of thousands of people. And he stands by this water that has washed the altar. And he says, I will give you living water. If you're thirsty, come to me. Jesus has invited all who thirst for truth, for eternal life, for forgiveness of sins, for a relationship with God to come to him. He is the gatekeeper. He is the one who provides access to the Father. And all who believe in Jesus will find this life-giving water, this newness of purpose and meaning, this restoration with God. As we close this morning, you could just read the rest of the chapter. We won't for time's sake, but in verses 40 through 52, how are you going to respond to this message? We see it played out with a variety of responses. Verses 40 to 44, the people remain conflicted. They remain undecided due to confusion over his origins. There's a little bit of irony here. I hope you saw it if you read this passage this week. Because they're 100% confident they know where Jesus is from. And then they say in the very next breath, when the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. Did you you get that humor? (laughs) I mean, it's like... They're wrong. He, he is from Galilee, but what we see in the opening gospel or chapter of Matthew is that Joseph is the son of David, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Luke 2 clearly puts an end to any question about where Jesus came from on a human level. He is of David's lineage. He was born in Bethlehem, and then his family moved to Egypt, and then his family moved to Nazareth. It's not that complicated, And yet, they didn't see it. Verses 45 through 52, this is really interesting. The officers who were sent to arrest Jesus in verse 32, they come back. 
And the chief priests and the Pharisees are like, okay, where is he? Oh, you guys don't understand. We've never heard anyone speak like this. Dude, you guys should get out more. He's really amazing teacher. And they blow their minds. Have you also been deceived? Verse 47. Verse, and then they continue. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed him? This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. What they're basically railing against and throwing a temper tantrum about is the fact that they, there is no one with any importance or any education who has yet believed in Jesus. And then, guess what happens in verse 50? Nicodemus, <clears throat> a gentle clear of the throat. Fellas, um, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Now, to be sure, Nicodemus doesn't say, hey guys, uh, just to let you know, I went to Jesus in the middle of the night. Um, you might read this someday in John chapter 3. Um, and we had this conversation, and he talked to me about being born again, and I was a little confused, but I'm starting to see the light. So, you know, and I kind of am one of the chief of the Pharisees, so this idea that nobody with any intelligence, nobody of any importance, we might be a little disappointed that Nicodemus doesn't go that far. Maybe he's not even a believer at this time. But what he says is true. The law actually forbids this. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 19, and you look at these verses, uh, verses 15 to 20, we see clearly how the legal process was to take place. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. And the judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Nicodemus knew the law. We might be a little disappointed that he wasn't a big card-carrying, banner-waving follower of Jesus at this point. But I think J.C. Ryle says something that should give us some pause. After all, we see in verse 31 that many people did believe on Jesus. While the crowds are conflicted, while these leaders are unmoved in their obstinate rejection of Jesus, and while they're angered, there are some that did believe. Rao says this about Nicodemus at this point. Slow work is sometimes the surest and most enduring. Nicodemus stood firm when Judas Iscariot fell away. We'll see that at the end of John. No doubt it would be a pleasant thing if somebody who was converted came out boldly, took up the cross, and confessed Christ on the day of his conversion but it is not always given to God's children to do so. Better is a little grace than none. Better to move slowly than to stand still in sin and the world. 
And that's my plea with you this morning. As we close out chapter 7, these men overlook the fact that 2 Kings 14.25 records that Galilee was the home of the prophet Jonah when they say no prophet comes from Galilee, and who knows how many other prophets God raised up from there. The point isn't, they're not concerned with the legitimacy of the law. They're just angry and speaking without thinking. They are in no mood to quarrel over the law or historical facts. They shut Nicodemus down. But here we are, standing in a room where there's peace and quiet. And so I simply ask you, What will you do with this Jesus? It's true that those who opposed him remained unmovable. That the undecided, they found themselves in a place of decision. They they were going to have to make a decision soon. What will you do with Jesus? Will you seek God in order to discover the truth about Jesus? Or this just pass away is another Sunday and you'll go back to whatever you're doing this afternoon. Lord, we just pray with a sense of profound need today. Truly, without your word and your spirit, none of us can know the full extent of our sin, even as we sang about it this morning. And certainly none of us can find our way to God without the Spirit and the Word teaching us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Lord, we sincerely pray that if you are working in the hearts of questioners, of doubters, of people who are conflicted about Jesus' claims for their lives, that you would stir them to believe to see that in Christ is something greater than anything this world can promise. We pray that you would build our conviction, Lord, that those of us who know Christ would be unashamed to be numbered as his followers. Even as the days get darker and darker, may the light of your church grow brighter and brighter. Give us a boldness to trust the authority of Jesus said, and thus saith the Lord, The word of God is settled on this matter. Let us not get ensnared with trying to be political or um, delicate. Let us just be unabashedly, unashamedly followers of Jesus. And where he leads, we are committed to follow. We pray this, Lord, because we need your grace. And we ask all this in the name of your most blessed Son. Amen.